Hello, and welcome to Technology and Space, where we talk about the science, technology, history, and business of space exploration and commercialization. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with David W. Brown, author of The Mission, A True Story, published by Custom House, January 26th, 2021. Uh, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you very much for having me here. Sure. And um, let's start with, uh, what's your background in the field of space? Well, I've been, a, I've been a journalist covering the space program for about, for about 10 years now. Mm -hmm. um, so I've covered everything from the New Horizons uh, arrival at Pluto mm -hmm. to in any number of, of, of launches, spacecraft encounters, uh, mm -hmm. gravity assists, uh, you name it, I, I've sort of been there. Been around the block a few times. Okay, and, and what prompted you to get in into it ten years ago? That's a good question. So before that, I covered politics mm -hmm. and did that for a couple of years. And every morning, I woke up hating my life and hating my job. Uh -huh. And I said, I, I knew I couldn't go on like this. Like I could not do that anymore. Mm -hmm. I said, well, What do I like? Mm -hmm. I said, Well, I like robots and I like space. Yeah. So I'm just going to write about space robots now. Yeah. And I've been doing it ever since. And I haven't worked a day in my life since. Right. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so tell me about this book then, uh, the focus and how you lay it out. Sure. So, so the mission is about a, a sort of a small team of scientists, engineers mm -hmm. who spent 20 years trying to convince NASA to fly a spacecraft to Europa, which is uh, Jupiter's ocean moon. Mm -hmm. uh, when I say, uh, the moon itself is about the exact same size as our moon. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say water, I don't mean like some weird def technical definition of water, some kind of green alien goo, but technically <laughs> it's water. I mean liquid salt water, just like in our oceans. Mm -hmm. um, you could take a cup and dunk it in that ocean and drink it. It would be very unhealthy for you, mm -hmm. but your body would know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. okay. um, so consequently, Europa is, is the most likely place in the solar system beyond Earth to harbor life, mm -hmm. and not just single-celled organisms, but conceivably complex life. You know, maybe, maybe fish, maybe maybe sea monsters. Okay. And, yeah. and the mission sort of reveals the inside turmoil at NASA to get that mission going. The book itself is about the the journey to getting the mission approved. Mm -hmm. uh, the way the way NASA works, it's uh, their missions are competed internally, mm -hmm. and uh, this is this is both within the agency, but also in the science community. Mm -hmm. And uh, it took a long time for 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 the White House, for Congress, for NASA headquarters, and for the scientific community, and actually for the the Europa uh, engineers and scientists themselves, to sort of coalesce around this mission and finally get it going. So mm -hmm. once it was formally approved in the budget, once it became an official mission, mm -hmm. um, that's really when the story. You know, that's that's kind of where the story ends. The mm -hmm. hard part is done. There's a saying in engineering that you can fly a spacecraft for three billion miles. That's easy. Yeah. It's the first inch off the Earth. That's the hard part. <laughs> so yeah. the spacecraft itself is under construction, and it should launch in 2025, that number plus or minus six okay. months, let's say. Um, okay, so then uh, when did uh, this mission, you know, as you, as you defined it, when did it begin in your mind? So the, the studies to go there go back as early as uh, 1996. At, these were internal studies at Jet Propulsion Laboratory. As soon as, as, soon as um, the spacecraft Voyager and then spacecraft uh, Galileo mm -hmm. really started getting data from the, from the uh, Jovian system, mm -hmm. they realized right away, 
Europa just looks weird. If you look at every object in the solar system, that's probably the weirdest object out there, hmm. um, depending on how you might define weird, because space is quite a diverse place. Hmm. So 96 is when those first internal studies started. The first major study was in 1998. Okay. That one went pretty far along, but it came in over cost. And when it got to NASA headquarters, they were like, you can't bring in a price. You can't bring in a spacecraft that's double the quoted cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there were multiple iterations of the mission since then. So it's been, they have studied the heck out of this, out of this mission and, and what a spacecraft there would look like. And what they came up with was quite, quite elegant. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'll, I'll actually ask a few maybe more detailed questions because I actually worked at JPL working on uh, the business side of developing some missions. Um, I guess first, uh, what, uh, what, what companies did they approach as far as um, putting, putting uh, projects? Well, I guess two questions. How were they, what science projects were they developing for the mission and who did they approach as far as, you know, launch and all the other sort of basic stuff? with the uh the mission so um most most of the the sort of engineering and development work's been done internally at jpl sort of the way that they do the the mars program Mm -hmm. the um in terms of price tags and and sort of mission size originally the goal was going to be can we do this for 500 million Mm dollars sort of a discovery class mission and and this was very early on this might actually be during discovery's inception Mm -hmm. and the answer was sort of a, a very quick no, we can't do discovery, uh, or, or we can't do something that inexpensive. And then it was, can we do it under a billion dollars? Mm-hmm. And again, the answer was sort of a resounding no. And ultimately, it became very clear, this has to be a flagship class mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the reason for that, which a flagship class mission uh, is, a, is, is a directed mission. They're called Large Strategic Science Missions at NASA headquarters. Mm-hmm. And the, the way it sort of works with these these are multi these are invariably multi billion dollar missions. They are missions that uh, usually go over budget. Hmm. Uh, Europa Clipper has actually been pretty successful in that regard. Okay. Um, in in stay in, and actually staying on budget, but I think Clipper itself is going to end up running. The numbers kind of go all over the place, but we can safely say three billion dollars. And and hmm. once once the dust settles, we'll know for sure. Okay. Can you go into uh, detail about how they chose what? Uh what science projects to put on the spacecraft, you know, what science they wanted to do when it's out there or as it's traveling. The um, one thing I want to add to the previous answer is the reason for the cost. And, mm-hmm. and this does come to the, to the science instruments that it carries. Mm-hmm. Uh, Europa exists in what's called the Jovian radiation belt. It's probably the least hospitable place in the solar system. The conditions there are like the immediate aftermath of a thermonuclear bomb. It's just, sure. it's hard for, a spacecraft and a spacecraft computer to survive in that environment. Mm -hmm. Um, Accordingly, the spacecraft has to be heavily radiation shielded Mm -hmm. or as would, as would uh, be the case in the end, um, rather than orbit Europa, they decided to orbit Jupiter. Mm -hmm. And each time it circles the planet, whenever it passes by the moon, Mm -hmm. it captured it, captures it in a slightly different orientation and just takes one stripe at a time. One stripe at a time, one stripe at a time, until ultimately it gets that 360-degree view of Europa. It gets all the data it would have gotten had it just orbited Europa. Huh. And this allows it to avoid marinating in that in that radiation belt. It can dip in and get out, dip in and get out. Mm-hmm. In terms of the instruments and, and the science they want to achieve, um, 
obviously carrying a camera is vital. They want to see what the surface looks like. And one of the reasons for that is they're going to want to characterize it for a future lander to actually touch down on the surface hmm. and eventually saw its way into that ice and sort of dig 10 centimeters under and start sniffing around to see if, see if they can find evidence of things that once wiggled. Mm-hmm. They want to be able to do ice shell science. So they would have to carry a radar and, uh, what they want to be able to do because Europa, it's an ocean world, but that ocean is covered in ice, sort of like Western Antarctica, mm-hmm. um, where there's, there's the Southern Ocean is beneath the continent on that, on that half of, uh, on that half of Antarctica. Okay. So they want to be able to see into the ice, see as deep as possible into the ice and sort of make a three dimensional, uh, get three dimensional data on it so they can model it and characterize it. Okay. Um, they obviously they're going to, they needed a thing just, your typical instruments like um, spectrometers and, and um, magnetometers, mm-hmm. particularly because because there's an ocean down there, a magnetometer is a great way to really characterize that ocean, mm-hmm. its volume, uh, and uh, and obviously with the, with the uh, spectrometers, they can get uh, mm-hmm. they can they can get composition of the surface. They can figure out what's going on there, what what exists there. They also they also have plumes jutting from Europa. And that's that's kind of a cool thing because it's a, it's basically impossible right now technologically to get into that ocean. There are ways to, you know, there are, there are sort of things on the drawing book, but it's still science fiction. <laughs> so rather than getting to the ocean with those plumes, it's conceivable that the ocean is coming to them. Right. And they can just fly through because plumes are just like great geysers, right? Mm-hmm. And they can just fly through them and, and collect data that way and look for evidence, you know, science of organics and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm I, I'm curious about sort of the whole the the budgeting battle and um you know with the big price tag you know obviously when you present this to the director it's like okay well what else could we do instead of if we didn't pay for this what else could we do and there's that balancing act um what what was it was it just sort of was this mission competing against other specific missions or just the budget in general. That's 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 a really good question, and and at, at a lot of moments in the in the history of Europa, because they've been trying to explore it for so long, mm-hmm. the who the adversary is or what the adversary is is ever changing. Mm-hmm. Pretty consistently, what's been the case, at least going back to 1998, um, NASA is sort of in a perennial budget 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 crunch. People think NASA has you know 25 percent of the federal budget <laughs> or something. Because they do these extraordinary things. You see a rocket launch and you think this, this has got to be, this has got to cost all of my tax dollars. <laughs> but NASA gets like one half of 1% of the federal budget. Like it's, it's a rounding error in something like the defense department budget. Yeah. And, um, accordingly, and, and, and these sorts of robotic space exploration missions, that's like 25% of NASA's budget. Mm-hmm. So that's a very tiny percent of already a tiny percent. So there's not a lot of money there. Mm-hmm. In the case of what, what are the other priorities? What is Europa Clipper competing against or a Europa mission over the years competing against? Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, if NASA has an opportunity, like it, should we go to this incredibly hard place that might have life, which is cool? Or could we go to Mars, which might have astronauts one day? Mm-hmm. The answer was usually let's go to Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, culturally, uh, Americans like Martian export, Mars exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, Culturally, at NASA, it's a it's a Mars first organization because it is a human space flight first organization. And when you look at sort of the founding of NASA, the plan originally was to go to Mars before anybody thought about going to the moon. The moon was a distraction once the Apollo program got underway. Mm-hmm. 
this is pre, you know, this is the early 1950s, obviously. Mm-hmm. In terms of what could we spend instead of going to Europa, that and that that was something along the way that happened all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of those competing internal priorities, things like uh, uh, James Webb Space Telescope going over going over budget, mm-hmm. ended up eating into the science budget, er, eating into the planetary science budget under the uh, under the Obama administration. That's one reason why. Europa had a hard time getting approved, even after Congress demonstrated a very firm willingness to pay for it. Hmm. Na- NASA was afraid, yeah, but if you guys lose re-election, we will have these long-term commitments that we can't pay for. So, no, we're not going to get behind it. Hmm. Ultimately, Congress basically twisted NASA's arm and said, no, no, you, you really will do this. This hmm. wasn't a request. <laughs> and uh, that's one reason why, uh, b- because Europa, uh, the Europa mission was passed into legislation, uh, it's it is what John Culberson, the former congressman from Houston, used to say. This is the only mission that it's illegal for NASA not to fly. <laughs> I'm speaking with David W. Brown, author of The Mission. You can find more information about his work at dwb.io. If you like this podcast, Technology in Space, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and fullcontactnerd.com. Now back to the podcast. And you did mention you you sort of uh, contrasted standard science instrumentation versus new instrumentation i'm curious about that you know the balance there like how much old how much new is will be on this are you talking about in terms of uh what's coming off the shelf versus what's being developed right yep because you mentioned the spectra uh the spectra uh i'm mispronouncing it but you said some of the science instruments were standard so uh, before so one of the interesting things about Europa is, or one of the reasons why Europa Clipper ended up getting approved in the first place, was the discovery of plumes. That that was a that was a major finding uh, by by scientists using the Hubble Space Telescope. Okay, and it was a game changer. Suddenly, the ocean wasn't a thing that we could get to a hundred years from now. It was a thing that we could get to now, and by flying through those plumes, we can we can get meaningful uh, data. <laughs> Originally, as conceived, Europa Clipper was going to be a no-miracles spacecraft hmm. because the mission had been canceled so many times over the years because of budget reasons. They said, we're going to do the cheapest, lightest, most off-the-shelf spacecraft we can do. Okay. No surprises when we're developing this thing. Mm-hmm. Once the mission was approved, though, what ended up happening were was um, the instrument proposals that came in were sort of Ferraris where <laughs> they were kind of counting on, you know, Toyota Tercels, yeah. um, which is great from a, from a science standpoint. I mean, th- e- even if instruments see uh, uh, features cut from them as the spacecraft goes further into development and, and certain things go over budget and we have to, well, let's get rid of that capability of this of that instrument X. Um, it, no matter what gets cut, it's still going to be far above and beyond anything that was originally proposed. Mm. So it's the, the science return is just going to be rich and 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 uh, beyond anybody's wildest dreams. Mm-hmm. 
that said, it, it, the instrument development is, is, is quite challenging because, again, they're building Ferraris from parts right now. Yeah. So we'll see how that, how that works out in the end. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, and did the same scientists or engineer and engineers work on the project all the way through, or has there been much turnover? There's a, uh, there, there's been a core team who's been there from the start, um, of Robert Papalardo, the, um, the project scientist. He's been there from really since 1990, consulting certainly on, on, uh, the Jupiter icy moons orbiter, for example, and then going into, uh, Jupiter Europa orbiter, part of the Europa Jupiter system mission. There was, uh, uh there was a Europa habitability mission study, hmm. ultimately what, what led to Clipper. So he's been there sort of in, in modern Europa studies basically the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave Sinski at JPL, Bob's at JPL, Dave, Dave Sinski at JPL, Louise Proctor in, in one way or another at the Applied Physics Laboratory has been with it from mm-hmm. the beginning. And at NASA headquarters, uh, Kurt Niebuhr is the program scientist there. He's kind of the guy at NASA who's made sure that this mission stays alive mm-hmm. uh, because there are, there are, or there were for, for a very long time powerful forces. I don't want that to sound like sinister or anything. <laughs> just, just cultural forces that were like this Europa business. We've tried, we've failed. Let's just draw a line through it and go somewhere else. And life would be a lot easier for everybody. Hmm. And Kurt was the guy who, no, 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 we, we need to do this. The decadal survey, the sort of the consensus priority document of the planetary science community said we need to do it and hmm. we're going to do it and let's find a way. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the people who've been there from the start. And there are others. Don Blankenship out of uh, University of Texas at Austin. He's the, the radar uh, principal investigator. And he's been doing uh, radar studies since, I think, 1997. Hmm. So he's been there quite a while. Okay. And um, what missions, What do you know what missions have, have, not, have not made it because the focus has been on Europa Clipper. Like what's out there that someone is crying that their mission didn't get done. So one of the things about Europa exploration in general is that it's generally been, we're not going, we're not, we're going to cancel the Europa project in order to do other things. And usually the other things were again, probably let's go to Mars. Let's, let's Mm -hmm. Mars is usually the, the, Mars is sort of the villain in the book because it's, it's like this crimson death star flying around whenever somebody's going to need somebody needs uh budgetary or engineering support we'll destroy this other body and 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 direct it toward mars mm-hmm. um in terms of i guess community sort of consensus community uh support in 2003 uh europa was the was the top ranked prioritized mission of exploration. And from 2000, you know, the 2003 decadal through 2013 decadal, mm-hmm. uh, Europa was never able to get off the ground. But when that next decadal came along, the ice giants people, that's Uranus and Neptune, mm-hmm. they were like, you guys had your shot. Like it didn't, it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. So let's do ours. now. And, uh, ultimately neither got the top endorsement. It was, uh, Mars sample return that got that sort of got the consensus priority um, mm. endorsement, but Europa Clipper basically was given equal science value, mm. and that's one re or Europa was given equal science value, and that's one reason why uh, Europa Clipper ended up flying 
mm-hmm. going into the next decadal, will the Ice Giants get a mission? I, I have no idea. It might be able to be done with a new Frontiers budget, mm-hmm. uh, in which case, if we can explore the Ice Giants for $850 million or, or just under a billion dollars, that would be a, an extraordinary achievement. And it would also free up NASA for its, for its large strategic missions to, 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 to go somewhere else, whether it's to actually get the sample from Mars back to Earth, mm-hmm. whether it's to put a lander on Europa, or maybe a, a Venus flagship, or perhaps an Enceladus, uh, Enceladus flagship. Hmm. How do you uh, do you document at all uh, efforts by anyone involved in this to um, generate more public interest or congressional interest? Like who's um, you know who's out there pushing, or throughout the, the period of this book, who is out there pushing to to get people excited about this? You know, that that's one thing I always wonder, like how getting the public more interested in science like this. That's a good question. I think in general, the scientific community has sort of had to take that on itself. NASA mm-hmm. is not going to, NASA headquarters is not going to expend a whole lot of time or spend a whole lot of money pushing for a mission that is not approved or close to being approved. Right. There was just no, uh, there's just not enough. There's not enough time, and NASA has its own priorities that it's got to keep going. Mm-hmm. So NASA headquarters, I would not say, is the big, has not historically been the big Europa advocate. Not until there was a, a plausible mission that mm-hmm. was going to get a green light. Right. The scientific community has been extraordinary at it, just sort of keeping keeping the idea alive, keep not chipping away at the science, finding, making these discoveries, discovering the ocean, for example, mm-hmm. which was the first ocean to be discovered in the universe aside from the ones on the planet earth i wouldn't how incredible plate tectonics on europa the first non-earth world known to have plate tectonics Hmm. um beyond that uh john culberson the congressman that i mentioned earlier europa has sort of been his he's he doesn't represent any part of the europa project but he is a a he was a strong nasa advocate Mm -hmm. and he was just he was just a space nut. He just liked it and he hmm. thought the idea of going to Europa and if it you know, if Europa Clipper started a mission sequence that culminated in a lander mm-hmm. that could actually discover that life, uh, that would be a galvanizing moment in, in human history and that would that would allow the federal but the federal government to fund NASA in a way that it hasn't been funded since the Apollo program. So that was sort of his big overarching plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond that, I would say Europa has a kind of an interesting place in pop culture. Obviously, in, in Arthur C. Clarke's 2010, the sequel to 2001, uh, Europa famously is the world that gets the, the, the cryptic warning, all these worlds are yours except Europa, attempt no landing there. Mm-hmm. And that's where one of those alien monoliths is, is discovered, and ultimately it's it's found to harbor, it, it actually harbors, it evolves and harbors and evolves life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Europa is, is kind of uh, weirdly outsized in its place in the solar system through, through the work of Arthur C. Clarke, mm-hmm. through the movie that came out of that, through, uh, other movies like Europa Report, places like that. It's a, it's just a, it's a cool moon because it's a nice moon. It's like, you know, it's like Hoth <laughs> yeah. from, from The Empire Strikes Back. So <laughs> yeah. if I'm a filmmaker or I'm a, or I'm a writer, it's, it's, it's a compelling environment simply because of how cold it is. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think astronauts would be able to land on there like in 2010. They would die immediately of cancer, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's yeah. still a fun place. So, so how do you, um, focus the book? It sounds like there are a lot of elements going on here. 
um, you know, budgeting and maybe, I don't know, promotion and the science and all that. How do you, is it just kind of a chronological review of what happened or do you break it into chapter themes in any way? How do you approach it? It was, that was an interesting challenge when writing the book because it, the, the mission gives a very holistic view of the space program. So it's never just focused on the team themselves. Mm -hmm. It's never, it's not just focused on headquarters. It's not just focused on the politics. It sort of gives the whole battlefield. Mm -hmm. And in order to tell that story in a way that I thought would be compelling, mm -hmm. because I, this is, this book is not written for, you know, planetary scientists who are bored. It's, it's written for, sort of a general audience who doesn't know the difference between an asteroid and a black hole. Mm -hmm. The science in it is rock solid and is explained and introduced in a way that, that is very accessible and lyrical. Mm -hmm. But um, that's also a lot of ground to cover because first of all, I mean, there are people who are on space missions who don't know how NASA headquarters works, right? Yeah, so there's a yeah. lot of things to explain. <laughs> How does NASA work? How does the scientific community work? How does the budgeting process work? How does the science work? And so on and so forth. So what I ended up doing to, 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 to tell this story with this amazing battlefield in front of me, mm -hmm. I, I generally broke the story down into different people at different places. So oh, okay. I think the book opens with, with Bob Pappalardo mm -hmm. before he came to Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And he would go on to be the project scientist and, and sort of the, the man spearheading, uh, the, the Europa mission. Mm -hmm. We go to Louise Proctor across the country at the Applied Physics Laboratory, mm -hmm. um, joining the team as well. We, we, we go to Congress and we see John Culberson wheeling and dealing to get money for Europa. Mm -hmm. We slide over to NASA headquarters. We, we go back and forth. And so, so the story, the story also has a major element of the story is the SLS rocket mm. because ultimately, um, the, the way timing worked for things, Europa Clipper had an enormously long uh, cruise phase, right? Mm -hmm. So after it launched from Earth, it was going to have to fly in space for like eight years because of how heavy it was how, or because of its mass. Mm -hmm. And um, the, we, NASA has no heavy, had no heavy lift capability at the time. Meanwhile, the SLS rocket was sort of pushed on um, NASA by, by the Senate. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time, it was a Mars rocket, right? This is our journey yeah. to Mars. Mm -hmm. But we weren't going to Mars. We're not going to Mars for twenty years at least. It's yeah. just it was it was it was a rocket to nowhere. It had no destination. <laughs> yeah. So one of the sales point for both SLS and for Europe Clipper was the sort of marriage made in heaven. And what we mm -hmm. ended up seeing was the first rocket in NASA's history that was actually during development a science mission went into its engineering like they engineered themselves around europa clipper which is kind of a cool thing hmm. um and so when you're telling the story of sls it seems totally unrelated at the time to the europa story mm -hmm. and the europa story is obviously unrelated to sls but at the end of the book they both come together and those people involved come together and and hmm. sort of push this thing through now you know here in here in uh, 2021 uh, SLS is no longer going to be the rocket that launches Europa Clipper, but my book ends in 2015. Mm. So I'm, it, it, what happened after that isn't really related to the story. Okay. Um, it's just how did it get approved? And the reason, you know, one of the things that was enormously compelling for NASA was 
sort of a value, uh, selling the mission as a, as a value to the, to the public. Look, we're building this rocket and we got the spacecraft. We got a spacecraft for it. Everybody wins. Mm -hmm. And Char Charlie Bolden, who was the NASA administrator at the time, uh, he was particularly enamored with it because he was an astronaut and mm. it was a, uh, you know, he liked to see those human spaceflight uh, elements, SLS being the case, yeah. get, get the support that they need. Um, I know that uh, in an environment like that, there's internally, there's a lot of bickering or complaining, you know, between people involved that you don't hear about, you know, publicly. Um, do you, do you get into anything like that in the book? Or are you pretty, um, do, do you stay away from, from those kinds of issues or how so much? I absolutely go into those. I face those issues head on. Mm -hmm. uh, the book is very honestly told. Mm -hmm. One thing I do, however, like this isn't a, a NASA can't do anything book. I find those books to be very lazy yeah. <laughs> um, because as a, as a, as someone who's been covering NASA for a long time, I could give you a litany of problems with the American space program. I could, we could have spent this entire call saying, this is a bad, this is a bad way of doing business. This is a bad way of doing business. This is stupid. This is stupid. Hmm. But one of the things I wanted to get across in the book is a sense of wonder. This is extraordinary stuff that they're doing. Mm -hmm. So when I was researching it, when I was writing it, whenever we ran into those friction points between people, mm -hmm. I was very careful to put myself in to, to fairly characterize everybody's perspective. Mm -hmm. So early on, like Ed Weiler, who was the former head of NASA science, uh, at, at the head of the science mission directorate. If you're on the Europa team, he's the most evil human being on the planet. He's Darth Vader because he keep, he keeps killing our missions. Why is he so mean, right? And this is a question even to this day that a lot of people, they had no idea what his deal was, but he just kept killing these missions. Mm -hmm. So when I was doing research, I went to Ed's house and we talked for, you know, four or five hours. Mm -hmm. And he had an enormously compelling and a rational reason for the things that he was doing, the reasons he was pushing back on these missions and, and, trying to get them to you know, come up with things more inventive huh. ways to stay in the cost box. Mm -hmm. um, he was, he was quite a character and in the end, obviously his, his methods worked, you know, the mission, a mission did get approved. Mm -hmm. So whenever we got come into, so whenever we come into contact with a villain, because the story, the way it's told, it goes from person to person and we really live in their head. We get their histories. We came to come to understand how they came to space science you know, I slip into the head of the other guy and we get a chapter from his point of view. And look, these Europa people brought back a mission that's 100% over budget. Like, mm -hmm. wh what am I supposed to do? Mm -hmm. It would be a, it would be a, it, I would be doing a disservice to the planetary science community if something like that happens. Mm -hmm. And I just say yes, mm -hmm. because then you would have to kill other missions. So, um, so yes, those friction points are definitely there. And um, I don't look away from them. And, mm -hmm. and this goes all the way down to uh, employee turnover. Hmm. on the Europa project, like Carla Clark, for example, who was the, who should have been the project manager. Mm -hmm. You know, she ended up getting forced out because once the mission got approved, uh, big dogs come in and stomp around and say, this is mine now. Hmm. Uh, so I face those unflinchingly, but I try very hard to make sure everybody is well represented. So nobody comes away feeling like, you know, that nobody's misrepresented in the public's eye. Mm -hmm. Nobody's misrepresented in the book and the, and the public remember, because the people reading this book don't know the day-to-day -day of NASA. Mm -hmm. I don't want them to think that they're these, you know, these horrible plots afoot to destroy each other. <laughs> it's not like that. Everybody right. has an argument. Everybody's the hero in his or her own story. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure that 
they were represented that way in the book. I'm speaking with David W. Brown, author of The Mission. You can find more information about his work at dwb.io. If you like this podcast, Technology in Space, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history, please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and fullcontactnerd.com. Now back to the podcast. This is sort of a tangential question, but uh, one I'm always interested in with these science topics is female engineers and scientists. Do you see enough representation um, you know, say in this mission or, or what you've seen, um, or how do you see it changing for the better? What do you see? That's a really, really good question. So historically, I don't think it's any secret that Jet Propulsion Laboratories had a, has had a, a, a problem with, with sort of representation on their missions, particularly in, in leadership positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, NASA itself at, at one point had sort of a wrong, poorly considered decision where it, it had, it, all right. Let me give you some background here. Mm-hmm. At at some point, I think this was in the uh, early to mid to the early two thousands, the decision was made that in order to run a flagship New Frontiers or Discovery class mission, the project the principal investigator or project scientist must have had two years of experience as a PI on a different mission. Okay. Or, or, you know, in a leadership role on a different mission. Well, because um, women historically have been underrepresented in leadership positions on missions, mm-hmm. what that meant was, in practice, they would be ineligible to lead future missions because they didn't have the leadership roles from the previous missions. Right. Um, that rule was something that uh, Susan Niebuhr at NASA headquarters uh, fought hard against, and she was successful in that. That rule ended up getting changed. Mm-hmm. Um, Europa, so Jet Propulsion Laboratory has historically had a problem. And, and a lot of it is just because it's just, it's an old place. It's been around for a while mm-hmm. and, uh, entrenched powers come in. And why do we do things the way we do it? It's because that's the way we've always done it. Yeah. And they're working very hard right now, I think, to, to change that. And, and they've made great strides in that. Yeah. Uh, Europa Clipper, Bob Papalardo has made it a priority that, um, historically underrepresented persons get those leadership positions, mm-hmm. uh, get into those meetings, um, get in, you know, are able to do the science are able to talk to the public are able to uh, be meaningful and leaders on these missions. Yeah. So that's, that's like a top priority of Europa Clipper is to make sure that you never mm-hmm. see the panel of like white men doing all the talking yeah. that, that would be considered a, a, a colossal failure and good for them. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's the way it should be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm always about, you know, make the pool as wide as possible of possible candidates. Cause then you get, you know, the best, the best you can that are out there. Um, exactly. And then that's like, I think it was Sally Ride who had the quote, like, if you don't see it, you don't, you can't be it or something to that effect. And and so it's important yeah. to have powerful representation um, on these things. Yeah. Um, so let me ask about uh, how you did your research. Like, um, it sounds like it was a lot of interviews, but what else did you use for this? 
Yeah. So the book took seven years, just under seven years to write, mm -hmm. um, to write and research interviews the over I interviewed over a hundred people from graduate student to administrator of NASA mm -hmm. research. I, I had to learn to read science papers and let me tell you, if you don't read science papers, that's not a fun thing to learn how to do. Um, <laughs> so that was, I, I attended so many conferences, so many workshops, so many um, uh, meetings and gatherings mm -hmm. in order to see science being presented, in order to see, you know, in order to meet with people offline and say, look, you just gave this incredible talk, mm -hmm. but I don't get it. Like, mm -hmm. can you help me with that? Can you walk me through it? Yeah. And, and doing things like that. Um, in terms of, uh, I, I, the first time I went to LPSC, the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference, where planetary scientists sort of gather every year in Houston mm -hmm. and, and just talk science for a week. The first, the first day that that morning that I went there, I was feeling super optimistic. I didn't know what I didn't know at that point. Mm -hmm. I showed up for the first meeting or the first group of presentations and I almost broke down in tears right there because I said, I've made a terrible mistake. I will never be able to write this book. Um, <laughs> but, but, but I, but I pressed on and thankfully I was, I was able to get it. It, it, mm -hmm. it, it required, I am very fortunate that the Europa people and, uh, a great unnameable percentage of, of NASA and, um, the planetary science community was so generous with their time mm -hmm. because I had to do a, a homespun uh, planetary science degree in order to write this book. It feels like. <laughs> And I'm very fortunate that I had the world's foremost subject matter experts taking my calls, getting texts at three in the morning saying, what in the world does this convection on Europa mean or whatever? <laughs> like, and, and they, to their credit, they, they were responding very favorably, mm -hmm. infinitely patient and, and helped me every step of the way. It took a lot of work. It was like 500 citations in the back of the book or something like that. It's this enormous number of interviews and science papers and mm -hmm. uh, anywhere I could find information. I went for it. Historic NASA history office documents, mm -hmm. uh, interviews from previous people. I mean, a lot of people in this book are dead now because it's mm -hmm. taken so long to get Europa going. And I had to interview widows and, and mm -hmm. former students and things like that in order to build the stories of these people who, who are no longer with us. So mm -hmm. it took a lot of patience from people and, and, I'm very fortunate that, that they were, uh, they were able to, or they were willing to offer me that help. Did you, um, were you able to take advantage of any kind of official credentialing that gave you better access or was it just all your own force of will to make it happen? It, it was a force of will situation. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I, I'm sure that there is some sort of secret handshake you can give to the person at NASA, the NASA press office where they say, by the way, we have the vault back here with the things we only give people <laughs> in the big club. Yeah. But, uh, but I never got the keys to the vault or, or the combination to the vault. I had to just, uh, I had to bother the heck out of a lot of people for a long time. And I had to, I frequently had to navigate NASA public affairs who are not, there are a great many helpful people in NASA public affairs, but mm -hmm. overall I would say as a, as a writer, mm -hmm. um, they are an obstacle to overcome. Well, I think they're, being a government organization, I'd imagine they're always worried about saying the wrong thing, you know, and then being fired basically because someone tells them, you know, how dare you say that? You know, I, I, I do, I, I do sympathize with that argument, but I'm a taxpayer like, yeah. and this book is for taxpayers. So yeah. we, we do, we do get to look at the files every once in a while. <laughs>
Did, were there any interviews um, that you wanted to do that you didn't get a chance to, like any individuals that you had been really hoping to talk to? I can honestly say that over the course of the book, seven years is a long time. Hmm. I got to talk to everybody that I could possibly want to talk to. And one thing that I found a, a greater challenge that I had was not having room in the book to talk to more people hmm. um, because there's every person that I spoke with down the line had an enormously compelling story, hmm. have dedicated themselves to this incredible thing and are just extraordinary people. I mean, it takes a strange and wonderful person to dedicate them themselves to the surface albedo of, you know, a dwarf planet or whatever. <laughs> like it, it's not, it's, it's, what kind of person does that and, and what is their story? And it's always fascinating. Mm -hmm. It is funny. I'm sure Kevin Hand would get a kick out of this. He's at Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's, he's uh, the, one of the studies, study leads on uh, the Europa Lander. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I never really got a chance to talk to him. I attended talks that he gave and I was able to get all the notes that I needed. Mm -hmm. And I felt very guilty that I never, I didn't have a place for him in the book and that I didn't get to, uh, I didn't really get to interview him for the book. And that was, that was my fault. It wasn't his, he would have talked, I know. Yeah. And so I just kind of, you know, I just kind of avoided him at conferences and stuff because I was at a point in the book where I didn't, we didn't, I didn't need to waste his time, but I also didn't want him to think like I wasn't mm -hmm. respectful of his work. Mm -hmm. So I went to Antarctica in 2019, uh, researching the next book that I'm writing. And I'm in the galley at like two o'clock in the morning and who walks in, but Kevin Hand. Like, what are the odds of this? Like, <laughs> someone that I'm just not looking for appearing in Antarctica, and not even at, like, McMurdo Station, where there's 2,000 people, but Casey Station, where there's, like, 50 people. Uh -huh. And he's just a great guy, just a dear friend now, and uh, and I'm, I'm, it's always such a pleasure to talk to him, and uh, and I just, I'm such a fan of his work. Cool. So, since you mentioned... Um... He's working on a study of Europa Lander. It makes me wonder how much, how much, um, money or resources goes into, cause that's not established. That's not a mission that's going to happen necessarily. You know, right. Europa Lander, how much do they invest in doing these side studies just in case? That's a, that's a great question. Uh, Europa Lander is a weird animal in planetary science in mm. that because John Culberson, the congressman, on the uh, the head of the uh, the commerce justice and CJS commerce commerce justice and science subcommittee of the of uh, House Appropriations Committee, mm -hmm. basically he's the guy who writes the check to NASA, and he wanted a Europa lander. So every year in the budget, he would write in hundred million dollars for the Europa lander, hundred million dollars for the Europa lander. Mm -hmm. So hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent on the Europa lander mm -hmm. by congressional dictate. So it's very far along in development. This is not an early okay. stage study. This is something okay. that's very mature. And uh, personally, I think something that should be pursued as a result. I mean, if you spent hundreds of millions of dollars on something already, and it's only, you know, you may as well just keep going. Because if we mm -hmm. take on any other flagship, we're going to have to spend those hundreds of millions of dollars and then go on to study, you know, actually develop the spacecraft and so on. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's where it is now what is jpl spending on it right now i don't know mm. but i know it's not enough to sort of keep that project sustained mm. and it will be very interesting to see what the next decadal survey says so one of the things that lander had against it working against it was 
it was not a recommendation in the last decadal. Um, I don't, it just wasn't on anybody's radar in 2013. Hmm. Uh, and as a, or, well, 2011, I think, or 2010, 2011 is when that decadal was written. I mean, Lander was not a thing that was going to happen. Hmm. It just wasn't. And it would be like, yeah. But, um, as a result, when the, the next decadal, which is presently underway, it is going to prioritize into sort of the mission queue or the flagship queue Europa lander. Hmm. And it'll be very interesting to see where it sort of shows up in the, in the hierarchy or in the, in the, in the queue of priorities, because if it gets an endorsement, then that's probably what NASA would fly next. Hmm. And if it doesn't into the filing cabinet, it goes. Hmm. And I've always thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, that even with canceled studies or missions that, there, it, it does create science or knowledge that is useful in other ways. It's not like canceled means that was all a waste, you know. Right, right. And and who knows what, you know, a great many technological innovations came out of the Europa Lander study mm-hmm. um, that, that are going to be applied J- JPL-wide for, you know, forever, j- mm-hmm. just like everything JPL does. No study, no, no studies ever wasted. Mm-hmm. Um and there's an interesting synergy even with like Mars, like the Perseverance lander mm-hmm. is that landing technology and sort of it's, it's surface scanning to find that perfect spot to set down on that technology went straight into Europa lander. So, you know, these things are always going back and forth and the engineers who work on one invariably work on the other. Are, are brought in to consult on the other. So yeah. a lot of stuff went in the lander and a lot of stuff from lander is going to go in other things. But I, I personally want there to be a lander simply because I want to find yeah. that clipper's not going to find the life. Like unless yeah. there's like a flock or a herd of <laughs> tauntauns yeah. scurrying across the surface and the camera catches them, it's just not going to find life. It, you got to get on that surface and you got to dig into that ice. So yeah. And now Disney is thinking, wow, if that were to happen, our stock would really shoot up. Let's let's support this. You know, one of the things I wonder, <laughs> let's say Lander costs $4 billion. If you're Jeff Bezos or, or Elon Musk, $4 billion is next year's lunch money. Why not just – so, okay. So if you are a billionaire and you want to be remembered forever, mm-hmm. why not – invest you know why not put your name on the side of the spacecraft that's going to find life and find non-earth life in the solar system like Mm -hmm. that would be the most consequential discovery in science religion and philosophy ever yeah who wouldn't do that if i had four billion dollars i'd write the check tomorrow i guess that's why i don't have four billion (laughs) dollars um but no that yeah it's a very good point um so what so with the research what what did you find most enjoyable in the process oh Definitely the people. Um, the science was enormously fascinating. Every day I came away amazed. Mm-hmm. For long projects like this, even for short projects, really, if you're a writer, very quickly you come to hate the subject like, <laughs> or you come to hate the thing that you've been writing. Oh, boy. I do this every day. Like I write a thousand publishable words a day, and every day by the time I file the story, I despise everyone related to it, <laughs> including <Yeah>. myself. Um <laughs> But in the case of this book, that never happened. And I was, I'm so glad because, you know, four and a half years into it with two and a half years to go, that would have been 
pretty miserable experience if, if that had been the case. But no, I can't, yeah. I loved it every single day. Yeah. And I, I, you know, the writing process was very difficult because the book is filled with wordplay and lyricism and sort of poetry. Okay. And um, that's hard to write. I, I've commented before that, you know, a book that's, that seems like it's easy to write are the hardest books to write. Hmm. So when the reader opens, you know, sort of cracks the spine, it should feel very breezy and flowing and just, like you could almost burst in the song reading the reading the reading the mm. words, and that's really difficult to do. Um, I'm not spinning my own wheels. I had to work on. I mean, some people can just do it naturally, but I had to slave to do it. Um, the, but it was the it was the stories of the people behind this mission that most that, that most uh, captivated me throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, they come from every walk of life: rich, poor, um, highly educated high school dropout um and and ultimately they they come together in a way that 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 that, that, that yields this 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 science and life-changing technology or, or life-changing mission mm-hmm. um and it was always fascinating because most people i mean i i including me in this number nobody ever says tell me about your childhood like unless you're at a therapist's office that's <laughs> never going to come up yeah so when I would sit across from people, we would start there. Where, where were you born? What was, what kind of car did your parents drive? Hmm. And people I found were, were moved by that. It was hmm. a, it was kind of a, it was kind of a therapeutic experience. They described it because, you know, I, I was probing very deeply into their lives and I'm very fortunate and very honored that they were willing to talk that much and in that much personal detail. Mm-hmm. But because they did that, I was able to tell a very, uh, a, a very empathetic story. Like mm-hmm. I don't just say Bob did X, mm-hmm. like we're in Bob's head when that happens. Bob was thinking about this. He was worried about this. This was his concern. He was also sick that day. Like mm-hmm. we, we get the story as though it's autobiographical in mm-hmm. those chapters. Um, so I, I'm, I just can't thank anybody enough for all that they've done to make this to make this book a success. And yeah. I hope that in return, um, I, I help put their, their mission on the map yeah. even more than it already is. Yeah. What, uh, what did you come across that most surprised you? I had no idea. I mean, going into this project. So when I first started, when I first conceived of the book, mm-hmm. I thought I had a pretty good grasp on NASA. Like, Everybody has an intuitive understanding of NASA. I think we, we just, we, you have the broad strokes and you think, yeah, I get it. Like I can do this. No problem. Right. And I went into the first interview on the first day and I realized immediately, oh my goodness, I don't know anything at all about how things work. (laughs) And it was a terrifying moment Mm -hmm. because I had already signed a book deal and I had to deliver on this book. And it's very difficult to write a book about, I don't know, tennis if you've never, if you thought you knew what tennis was, but you never actually picked up a racket. Yeah. So it was also liberating though, because suddenly I was able to approach the subject with a beginner's mindset. Yeah. I just put away every preconceived notion and everything I thought I knew. And I said, I am going to approach every single interview as though I know nothing at all. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to take in everything these geniuses have to tell me. And when I tell this story as a result, so I was, I, I was, I was blown away every single day. Every day was wonder and excitement. Mm-hmm. And as a result, 
when I wrote the book, after doing all this research and while doing all while doing all this research, I was able, I think, I hope, to impart that same sense of wonder on the reader. Because again, this book is not written for somebody who knows much about space. It's written for somebody who would be happy never knowing anything about space. They are the ones who are going to pick up this book and say, oh, wow, that's incredible. We can do that. That's how it works. That's great. Yeah. So the reader should have the same sense of wonder that I had when I was when when, when I was researching it. So I, I was I opened myself up to being blown away every single day, mm-hmm. and I absolutely was. From how do you plan to build a rocket? Like if you want to build a heavy lift rocket, how do you do it? Mm-hmm. What are the things that go into it? Like on some level, you think, well, rocket engines and fuel, but no, 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 so much more than that. Why is it? Why are rockets the shape that they are? Mm-hmm. What is the what is the reason that they're not going to build a shuttle type yeah. launcher anymore? Yeah. We, we, and, and, and I can ask the people, the person designing the rocket, why'd you do it this way? Well, we did it like this. The person designing a Europa Clipper, why did you do it like this? Mm-hmm. Well, we wanted that cylindrical shape here because it's going to sit on the top of the rocket and it's more efficient and so on and so forth. Yeah. Little things like that to me were, um, were mind blowing, frankly, mm-hmm. because, because we, it's not something you ever pause to think about. Right. You just know, oh, the spacecraft goes on top and it gets launched with the rocket and that's it. But mm-hmm. I got to ask why. And, and that was a, that was a lot of fun to get those answers. That's cool. So once you, um, once you really got into the groove and, you know, had a understanding of what you were dealing with, um, what became, what was the most difficult question, uh, for you to answer or get an answer for that maybe you still have unanswered or, or just took a while? Hmm. I think that's, I, I can't say that I have any outstanding questions that were not, were never answered. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of beat away at the problem long enough where finally, you know, just, just through tenacity and just wearing people down, finally they were like, fine, here's why. Yeah. And, and that went a long way. You know, that, that worked out in the end. I think okay. hard questions to answer weren't necessarily, um, the why questions. Mm-hmm. I was able to get those fairly easily because people, people are excited to tell you their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, people, everybody has an amazing story, no matter what your job is. If you're the, the mailman or the janitor or a construction worker or the head of NASA, mm-hmm. you have an, everyone has an equally compelling story. Yeah. I think Yeah. if you just sit them down and say, let's get a beer and talk and you're going to get some pretty extraordinary things, no matter who you talk with. Yeah. I, um, the hard, so the why was never very hard because I was always able to get people to tell me the why. It's, it was the science that was always very difficult for me. It, it, it because again, I'm not a, sci- I, I'm not, I'm not a planetary scientist and my undergraduate degrees in computer science, but that didn't really come in much use for a, a book about, uh, well, I'll give you an example. Like in high school, I, uh, I only got two F's ever. And those two F's were physics and chemistry. <laughs> And then when I went to college, I, uh, I had to, because I was in the College of Basic Sciences, I had to have another science in addition to computer science. So I took yeah. geology because they called it rocks for jocks. Yeah. And I just, <laughs> not that I'm a jock, but I'm no genius. And I just coasted through with a gentleman's C. I couldn't tell you a single thing I did in college <laughs> with related to geology. And then for the rest of my life, what would my career end up being? Writing about geology, physics, and chemistry. <laughs> so, so I'm the yeah. past me really did present me a disservice. But, yeah. uh, but again, as I said earlier, thankfully I'm able to pick up the phone and call the world's foremost subject matter expert on 
ice shelves on Europa or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he can say, well, and I'm like, no, explain it to me. Like I'm a very small and stupid child <laughs> and they're able to, they were able to really break those things down and, and teach me things I wouldn't ordinarily have done. So yeah. that was hard. You know, the unknown unknowns in terms of one's own personal knowledge, um, it, it, that could be intimidating a lot, but, but in the end, uh, we, we, we soldiered through. And mm-hmm. one of the things I was very afraid of when I finished writing the book, I submitted the, you know, I, the manuscript was submitted. We'd gone through the first round of edits. We went through the second round of edits. It was over a year and a half of edits, I think. Mm-hmm. And finally the manuscript was in semi-final form. And again, you know, drawing from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of source documents and interviews, I was terrified for the principals on the Europa mission to finally read it. You know, mm. these scientists who know, who literally wrote the book on these subjects, right? Mm. They wrote the textbooks behind these things. So <laughs> you're not slipping anything past them. Yeah. And I sent it to Bob and he was one that I was really worried about because he's, he just, he's so smart and he notices everything. Mm. And I didn't know what to expect. And later that night I got a text message, like I'm reading passages out loud to my wife and he and Mabel went back and forth, like reading passages to each other. And when he finished reading the manuscript, he said, I need you to change one word. Like that was the, he had one word he wanted changed for precision Uh in the science. And I'm like, Oh my goodness, this was, it was one of the proudest moments of my life because there's a lot of science in this book. And and it wasn't really, a, it wasn't merely a matter of parroting the science. Like it wasn't like I could read a science paper, go to the conclusion section right. and just paste in, you know, or, or rewrite these sorts of dense science things. I had to yeah. internalize the science and I had to synthesize it with other science and yeah. then tell it and then explain it to people in a way that anybody could understand. Someone who has, you know, who's never once looked at the stars has lived in a city their entire life <laughs> and light pollution has kept the sky away from them their entire lives. Yeah. And suddenly they have to understand the, the, the Jovian radiation belt or how we, how physicists were able to use the Galileo magnetometer to find the subsurface ocean on Europa. Yeah. Like it was, it was, it, it, it felt very good in the end that, that, that I was able to get that science right. Yeah. So. I like that, that you bridge the gap between, you know, the people without the knowledge and, and the people who have all the knowledge, so to speak. I like that, you know. It, it was a real honor to be able to talk to these people. It's just, I'm just, I have chills right now just saying it out loud because it was such a big part of my life. And yeah. I was in the trenches for so long. It, it just, it was, it was a great experience. What uh, was it at any point? Did you experience like a very strong emotional reaction, either uh, just, like joyful or maybe something that uh, really affected you negatively? Like, was there, did you have any, anything that impacted you that hard through the process? Well, because, because the story is written with a a, a tremendous amount of empathy for everybody that I encountered. Mm -hmm. um, One of the things I was able to do, or or one of the things that I encountered while writing it was a a certain, because I'm spending so much time in these people's heads. Mm Mm-hmm. Like I would always either get super frustrated on their behalf because when re when writing it onto the page, Mm -hmm. this person is frustrated at the system or or whatever, at a colleague, at the system, at the way things work or whatever, at Mm -hmm. the budget. Mm -hmm. And so I, um, yeah, so I had to get frustrated on their behalf and I did because again, you know, I approached this entirely as 
entirely with a beginner's mindset. So when I went to the interview with the villain, mm-hmm. who I thought was be the villain of the book, oh my goodness, I'm so excited. He's mustache twirling, death ray pointed at Metropolis, bad guy. Mm-hmm. And then I sit down with him. I don't, I don't approach him like that. Right. Like, tell me your story. Yeah. Tell me how did you first approach Europa? Tell me um, what were some of those hard decisions you did? Well, mm-hmm. you know, in this year, why? Why was the mission canceled? Like what crossed your desk that led to that? Mm-hmm. And people would pull out computers and rifle around an email from 1999 and say, well, this happened and I talked to this person and this happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was really upset about it, but, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that, that went down the line. So even when I'm in the villain's mindset or the villain, I don't mean it like that, right, but right. The, the, yeah. the antagonist toward someone who would just say, let's just launch the first spacecraft we have. Let's get it to Europa right now. Yeah. Um, anyone who's uh, antagonistic toward that, I made sure when I was writing it and when I was talking to them mm-hmm. to be just as adamantly, no, we can't do Europa right now. Mm-hmm. We can't do it. And because this is why. Mm-hmm. And I know it's a hard decision. I got to break it to them, but I'm breaking it to them. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, so yeah. That was that was sort of the cool experience I got to have. I got to have a whole lot of emotions while writing this book, and yeah. I think the reader will as well. What uh, you mentioned before that like we could have spent the time talking, spent the whole time talking about problems. What uh, is there any systemic problem that you could identify that maybe maybe one big problem and then a small problem that could easily be fixed if people focused on it? I think the biggest problem that NASA has isn't really directly related to planetary science, although um, there there's probably, because NASA is so tightly integrated at headquarters, there's going to be some overlap there. Mm-hmm. It is that the NASA administrator and, and NASA itself belong to the White House. Mm-hmm. So when you get a new president, you get a new NASA administrator every four years or every eight years. Because NASA's projects and programs tend to be, you know, 20 years long. Like if you want to go to Mars... It's not happening in eight years. It's just not. <laughs> it's not yeah. happening in 12 years. It's a, it's, it's a long-term project. Whenever a new administrator comes in and a new administration comes in, priorities change. Mm-hmm. And if there is a strong science bent at the White House, NASA might do pretty well. If you're antithetical to science, NASA's on its own. Good luck. Mm-hmm. One thing that I would change if I could, and I don't know institutionally how this would work or structurally in the federal government, but I know this is something that, that Congress has looked at in the past, something they've considered. I would take the position of NASA administrator and separate it somehow from the White House. I would make it more like the director of the FBI. I think the director of the FBI has like a set 10-year term. Yeah. No matter who's president. When the new president comes in, the director of the FBI is still there. I mean, there are extraordinary reasons you can fire the director, but in general, you don't do that. Mm-hmm. And so I would love to see the NASA, the position of NASA administrator be structured similarly. Because the FBI, I mean, I mean the, uh, yeah, the FBI belongs to the, to the federal government as well. So there's no reason that I can think of that the administrator right. of NASA couldn't be the same way. Yeah. And that would allow sort of a consistency across presidential administrations Mm -hmm. and it would allow these 20 year programs to get a good solid 10 years of consistent leadership, consistent funding priorities. Uh, The administrator could walk into the president's office with a diff with a greater authority, not as 
a an employee of the, I mean every, not as like merely an appointee of the president right but as a, a powerful and independent figure in the federal government mm-hmm. I think that would go a long way toward helping NASA reach these long-term uh, objectives mm-hmm. that's the big one yeah. uh, little things I don't know I I, I wonder if so when we look at the decadal process, the decadal survey, which um, is going to recommend the next flagship missions, if I'm an ice giants scientist, for example, I don't want to pick on the ice giants. I hope I hope desperately we go there uh, eventually in one way or another. Mm-hmm. If I'm an ice giants person, I say, look, in the 80s, we approved Galileo. And then we went on to explore the Jovian system. You know, in the 90s, we approved Cassini. And then we went on to explore the Saturnian system. Mm-hmm. And then we went with Europa, so we went back to Jupiter. But we don't know anything about Uranus and Neptune and its icy moons. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a there's some interesting science que- some compelling science questions to be answered here. It's our turn. It's our turn for a flagship. But I do think that the it's our turn model is probably not the right way to go. If, mm-hmm. if for example, we can explore the ice giants at, at, in a new frontiers budget, mm-hmm. I think that's the way to do it. I, I think just because you haven't had a flagship yet doesn't mean you deserve a flagship. Yeah. I think it's what is the best way to answer these science questions. And if we could do it with six discovery missions for the cost of one flagship, mm-hmm. well, why not do that? I mean, th- these are, these are, these are things that need to be looked at, I think, with the next decadal. Whether it'll happen or not, I, I, whether it'll happen or not, I don't know. I wrote about this for Slate uh, uh, earlier this week. Oh, okay. But I, I do think it's 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 certainly an important question to ask. It's certainly something worth discussing. Mm-hmm. What do you use to keep abreast of, um, or to keep track of, um, the latest space science news? What sources do you like? I. Uh, that's a good question. I, I, I tend to stay on top of science papers because scientists just generally, uh, fire them my way. If you're, if you're a scientist reading this, even if it's not space science, by all means, look me up and send me your latest research. I love Mm -hmm. staying on top of it. It's the easiest way to, uh, to keep abreast on what's going on Mm -hmm. in terms of sources of journalism. Um, I don't think I have any one favorite. I I like Scientific American. I like um, Supercluster. I think is doing some great stuff mm-hmm. uh, with rocketry. I think they're probably the doing the most interesting stuff with rocketry out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoy occasionally the New York Times has some pretty great stuff. Kim Chang is amazing. Um, okay. So yeah, it's and and also I'm just so plugged in on social media with so many with so many science space science journalists that. I can't get away from the stuff. Like, even if I wanted to stop <laughs> hearing about it, and believe me, there are days when I do. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, I don't think I could, unfortunately. I, I'll get a text message tomorrow that says, "Hey, look at this." So, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm. It's it's like uh, uh, Michael Corleone in The Godfather Part Three. Like just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. So, um, so ultimately, what? So we talked a lot about what. Uh, what you've written the book for, but ultimately what do you want it to do for readers? You know, what do you want the takeaway to be? That's a really, really good question. This is a, it's a, this is a book about scientists and it's a book that has science in it, Mm -hmm. but it's not a science book. 
if that makes sense. This is a this is the story of how different people handle being at a crossroads in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and in every instance, in every person's head that we're in, they encounter these moments where you could go left or you could go right. Mm-hmm. And the decisions they made along the way, good and bad, led them to this moment. And this moment being... Uh, standing at the threshold of launching a mission that could change the course of human history. Mm-hmm. More broadly, it's a book about crossroads for NASA itself, making that decision. Do we go to Mars? Do we go to Europa? How do we spend this part of our budget? Do we pull away from planetary science and put it toward space telescopes? Um, does this overrun Mars mission? Do we need to pull money from other projects? Mm-hmm. How do we make these decisions? Um, Congress, how do we decide what we're going to fund? How do we decide we who are not astrophysicists or planetary scientists, how do we decide this is the most important priority? Yeah. Um, more broadly than that, the entire planetary science community, how, what do we recommend we do next? Mm-hmm. How do we make these decisions? And what are the implications of that? What are the science questions that we need to answer in order to press our career field or in order to press our scientific discipline forward. And then ultimately, what do we as the human race, uh, how do we want to advance ourselves? How do we want to advance our scientific understanding of the solar system and of the universe and of life itself? Mm-hmm. Is that a question that we need to answer? Do we need to answer the life question? Do we need to understand how this cr- creepy frozen moon of Jupiter works? <laughs> And, and my personal answer is, of course, it's self-evident, but yeah. as a, as a, as a, as a country and as a people, that's something, that's a conversation that we need to have in a way that we have not historically had it. Mm-hmm. And we need to make that decision. And then we need to sort of go boldly in, in, in that direction. So it definitely, it's people at a crossroads and how they handled it. And I hope readers come away with, a a better understanding not only of how things work in space exploration, but how we work um, as human beings. Mm -hmm. Did you have any uh, difficulties? You said you had the the signed deal. Did you have any difficulties getting it finally published or anything, any hiccups there or was it? No, no. So custom house, my publisher, they're an imprint of a Harper Collins. Mm -hmm. My editor, his name's Jeff Chandler, and when he first signed the book, it's funny. So I'd, I'd done a lot of research for a long time, mm-hmm. and I felt like I had a good grip on the subject. And I wrote, it took about a year to write the book proposal. It's like 100 pages long. Like mm-hmm. the book proposal is enormously detailed so that when the publisher buys the book, there are no surprises. Mm-hmm. Um, they know exactly what they're going to get, and you're going to stick with it. So I, I handed in the proposal or my agent sold the proposal or sent the proposal to him and he called and we had conversations and had conversations with other editors. But ultimately I went with custom house because he just, he was the hottest place of publishing at the time. And he's probably the most talented editor in the business. And he said, well, how long do you think it's going to take to write the book? (laughs) And I said, I guess if I put, if I worked really hard, I could do it in a year. And he just laughed and he said, yeah, let's see what happens in a year. And of course, you know, five years later, I, I was still working on it. So, yeah. um, so they were so, he was so incredibly patient, so incredibly supportive. Mm-hmm. 
um, we would have conversations, you know, once a year and we would have, we would, we would talk and I would want to almost cry because it's like, I'm still behind schedule and here's why and I'm trying and it's very difficult. But, and he's like, mm, every, uh, every great book has that exact same story. I'll talk to you next year. Like it was, it was that kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. And, uh, ultimately they gave me the resources and the time that I needed to produce uh, a book that I hope, uh, is what we would call a hundred year book. I have a hundred years from now. People are still reading the story. Yeah. So your next writing project, do you want to say anything about that? Any details about it? Oh, sure. Yeah. No, it's about a uh, rapid sea level rise, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, uh, and Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And it's about uh, a project called ice cap, which is, which is based, uh, in part out, out of the, uh, uh university of Texas at Austin. Mm-hmm. And it's this incredible group of scientists who, do geophysical surveys of Antarctica. So they go down there and they have this old 1942 airplane that flew in the battle of the bulge hmm. and it's been refitted and it carries, and they put, you know, they mount scientific instruments in it and they, they do these, they do this, the geophysical exploration of Antarctica. They look at the bottom of the ice, what's going on down there hmm. to understand how the continent works, what its future is, what's going to collapse next. And how does that affect, uh, 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 sea level rise mm-hmm. and it it allows you know the, the sort of data that they take away from that it allows things like on a practical level if you're a civil engineer you know you can take that data you can go to the city of new orleans where i live and you can say look in 50 years you're going to get three meters of water mm-hmm. you need to start preparing now or you could say in 500 years you're going to get that problem so maybe it's not a pressing issue or you could say in five years you're getting a meter of water. You really need to figure this problem out. Yeah. And it allows, you know, it's, it's, this is a problem that's not going away. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is where that data come from. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm, I was super, I'm super honored to, uh, to work with them. They're, they're an incredible group of people. And, uh, it's going to be another few years working on that book too. Yeah. I wonder one of the issues that, that, that brings up is, um, sort of on the business side, you know, sea level rise also affects, um, land prices and whether banks are going to give mortgages for, for new construction in these, these areas. Do you get into at all? Is the book plan to get all at all into these greater issues, you know, business and society and all that, or. Absolutely. Uh, I, I tend to gravitate toward um, stories that are sort of epic in nature hmm. that are, are going to surprise and educate the reader and that have enormous stakes for everyone. Hmm. So in the case of the mission with Europa, hmm. uh, stakes are the stakes of discovering non-Earth life, life that doesn't exist in our food chain, that doesn't come from a common ancestor. I mean, that affects that affects science in fundamental ways. I mean, by you rewrite the books on biology mm-hmm. that affects religion. Mm-hmm. Suddenly we have a second garden of Eden out there that affects philosophy because it's mm-hmm. answering that question. Are we alone? Where did we come from? I mean, these are, these are fundamental uh, questions that as a species um, we've been worried, we've been thinking about since we were, you know, Neanderthals and cave people drawing on walls yeah. in the case of uh, sea level rise and, and, the continent of Antarctica, again, the sea level is going to rise. It's time. It's going to happen. And again, that's going to touch all of us. I mean, that's Manhattan. That's, that's Sydney. That's 
New Orleans, that's Miami, that's mm -hmm. Los Angeles, that's um, any number of uh, major uh, cities in China, uh, that's Japan. So, so these, these, these are big problems. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's important for people, and, and I haven't, I'm not far enough into the manuscript yet where I can say exactly what the shape is going to be, but I definitely want to come at the problem in a way that people are think they're reading sort of what feels almost like a heist story, right? Mm -hmm. How did these scientists get this thing going, right? How did they get this data? How did they work around the National Science Foundation or whatever? Yeah. But what they are in fact getting is uh, sort of a, a profound education in why this matters, mm -hmm. why this matters to you personally, um, because you're paying for it. Here's why. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and if we don't do this, if we don't pay for it, these are the consequences. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how it's looking right now. Good. Ask me again in four years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And good thing you have a patient editor who understands what it takes. <laughs> We'll, we'll we'll see how see how how far I can take this one. <laughs> so, I might be asking for a job at the end of the year. So. <laughs> um, so where can people find you on the web? Do you have social media website? Sure, I'm on uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, my my your handle username is your... at a DWB like David Wayne Brown mm -hmm. DWB writer W R I T E R so at DWB writer. And uh, I, I have a website. It's dwb.io. Oh, okay. dwb.io. Okay. Okay. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, I'm very grateful for your time today. And your questions were very well considered. And, uh, and it was fun to think about this stuff because much like the scientists that I wrote about who mm. they, they, they were in the trenches for so long, like just fighting this guerrilla war to get their mission approved yeah. that when I, when I talked to them for the first time, it was like they were, they had to stop and actually look back at all they had achieved. <laughs> and so they always, they always had these moments where it was almost like, Whoa, I did a lot. Like that was something. Yeah. And, uh, it's interesting when I'm talking to you right now, I feel exactly the same way. Like, wow. I really went through, really went through an ordeal there, but, but yeah. it worked out in the end. Yeah. So thank you so much for that experience. Yeah. Good, good. Thank you. And thank you for writing a book like this. Cause I, I feel like the history of something like this is always important to capture and it's not often done. So it's really special when it does happen. So yeah, I have to thank you for that, for doing this. Well, it's, it's my pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Technology in Space, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more science, technology, and space history, please visit technologyinspace.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter to keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. Thanks for listening.